Welcome to a new weekly podcast series called USERF Spotlight, hosted by the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, an independent federal advisory body. During each episode, Director of Outreach and Policy, Dwight Bashir, features a special guest to dive deeper on various topics and breaking developments that impact the universal right to freedom of religion or belief around the globe. Welcome to USERF Spotlight. I'm Dwight Bashir. On today's episode, we're going to discuss religious freedom conditions in the Gulf country of Bahrain. Uh, following our recent decision to no longer recommend uh, that the government of Bahrain be placed on the State Department's special watch list for severe religious freedom violations. This was the first time since 2012 that Bahrain did not appear as a standalone chapter in uh, USERF's annual reporting. And over the past few years, Bahrain has made incremental improvements uh, to their overall religious freedom record. And the government has worked to enhance the rights of many religious minority communities, including Christians, Jews, Hindus, and Buddhists. And they also boast a small but active Baha'i community. At the same time, there's some lingering concerns regarding the government's treatment of the country's Shia Muslim majority, which we'll take a more in-depth look in today, as well as their engagement uh, diplomatically on these issues. They certainly have proved in that area as well. Joining me to discuss these issues today is USERF Supervisory Policy Analyst Scott Weiner. Welcome, Scott. Thanks so much for having me, Dwight. Well, great to have you back on uh, USERF Spotlight. As you know, we were both part of uh, USERF's most recent delegation to Bahrain in 2019. And before uh, Scott came on board uh, the year before that, in 2018, I had a chance to visit Bahrain many times uh, covering the, 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 that part of the world over a past decade or so, uh, and uh, you know had a chance to visit uh, several times. So Scott, why don't we start? Tell us, why is Bahrain so important to the United States, given how small a country it is uh, in terms of size and population in the Gulf region? But it's true. Bahrain is quite a small country. It's about 3.5 times the size of Washington, D.C., and you can see the entire country flying over in an airplane. Um, but regardless, Bahrain is a very important country for the United States. Firstly, it hosts the Fifth Fleet of the U.S. Navy, which consists of about 15,000 personnel. And the Fifth Fleet ensures that shipping routes in the Persian Gulf are free and open. And it also protects against the Iranian military and other uh, Iranian government entities um, who might seek to create instability in the region. So Bahrain is a very important defense partner for the United States. Secondly, it's a very strong trading partner. U.S.-Bahrain trade topped about $2.5 billion in 2019. Many American companies like Starbucks, for example, are uh, represented there. And uh, finally, Bahrain was one of the first countries in the Arabian Peninsula to pursue normalization with Israel as part of the Abraham Accords. Uh, these agreements have led to increased trade as well as security cooperation between the two countries. There's now regular flights between uh, the Bahraini capital, Manama, and uh, Tel Aviv in Israel. And this alignment of U.S. allies has the potential to create greater regional stability and better cooperation to deter Iran, again, from taking violent action. Uh, so on a number of levels, the U.S.-Bahrain relationship is, is really important. Um, and so religious freedom issues are therefore magnified in their importance. 
Well, you know, now that you've given an overview of the overall importance to the United States and kind of the U.S. relationship with Bahrain, how would you characterize uh, the current state of religious freedom in the country? And and where are the areas that we've seen the, the marked improvement uh, over the past few years? And where are the areas uh, where concerns remain uh, to this day? So we've certainly seen improvements since 2011, when there, uh, or 2011-2012, um, when we saw, saw uprisings throughout the Middle East, including in Bahrain. Um, there were a set of recommendations made um, by an independent council to the Bahraini government uh, called the Bahrain Independent uh, Commission of Inquiry, or the BC. Uh, the BC report made several recommendations, um, most of which have been implemented. Uh, the State Department um, had originally made an assessment of those recommendations. Uh, we would call on the State Department to make an updated assessment, but I think we're in agreement that there has generally been progress in terms of rebuilding mosques that were destroyed and really taking a serious look at the ways in which Shia in Bahrain uh, face systematic discrimination. Now, Shia are the populational majority in Bahrain, um, whereas the ruling family, the Al Khalifa family, is uh, Sunni, but nonetheless, um, Shia do face discrimination. And so we have some concerns about um, lingering aspects of that discrimination related to the treatment of prisoners, um, related to the ability of Shia Bahrainis to observe the holiday of Ashura. In recent years, we've seen the mass revocation of citizenship from Shia citizens. Um, so this is sort of an ongoing area of concern. Now, that being said, it's also important to remember that there are other religious minorities in Bahrain, and many of them enjoy uh, freedom of worship um, and you know a very positive relationship with the government. So there's a Hindu temple that has over a 400-year history in the country. Uh, the synagogue in Manama, the Jewish synagogue, was recently renovated, um, and there is a Catholic church which is slated for completion sometime in the next year or so as well as uh, Buddhist communities and, and many others. So uh, it's a bit of a mixed bag, but I would say that the overall trend has been towards greater openness for religious freedom in Bahrain. You know, it reminds me of what you're saying there is when you go back to, you know, the troubles back in 2011 related to the Arab Spring, um, certainly, you know, the government, uh, you know, was implicated in destroying a number of the Shia mosques and uh, places of worship and, and Husseiniyas where they gather, um, you know, as well as targeting individuals on the basis of their faith. And they've gone, they've come a long way since then. Um, but what I want to get to here is, as we've as we've seen, you've outlined a number of the significant things that Bahrain has done. I mean, they've created a center that deals with interfaith dialogue in the recent years. They've, you know, had a declaration uh, and so on that deals with religious freedom and interfaith activity. A number of these positives. So when we look at 2020, uh, in because that's what we're looking at here in our in terms of an annual report we do year to year. Um, tell us about what was the basis in which uh, we determined that Bahrain did not meet that special watch list status this year versus in years past? So user's reporting period covers, as you said, Dwight, a one-year period from January to December. Uh, we found that the nature of discrimination in Bahrain was largely muted as a result of the COVID-19 global pandemic. And the discrimination we observed tended to be more socioeconomic in nature or related to other identities. Now, there are many other U.S. government human rights bodies that track and monitor those issues and can speak to the nature of those concerns. 
And the fact that we found that ultimately the level of religious persecution didn't rise to the standard of being systematic, which is the uh, the standard outlined in our legislation, uh, it doesn't mean that there aren't any religious freedom issues in the country, but uh, our commissioners determined that that systematic threshold wasn't met. Now, that being said, we have some remaining concerns about, for example, the interrogation and in some cases, uh, the arrest of Shia religious figures, some of whom were interrogated over the content of their sermons or over fairly standard Shia religious supplications. Um, we've had some concerns about the treatment of uh, Shia in prison specifically, who've been uh, you know, harassed over their Shia identity. And we have some concerns about law that make it very difficult or impose punishments on people who are critical of uh, religion. Um, so it's not to say that this is a perfect bag, but in terms of that systematic standard um, that our legislation outlines, we found that that was lacking for this particular year. You know, I want to hit on and get a little bit more in terms of going back further to be able to make that comparison, because, you know, I had mentioned earlier that I had traveled to Bahrain before 2011 as well on behalf of the commission, uh, to, you know, particularly during years when there was already some allegations of discrimination against the Shia majority, uh, going back a bit further historically. Um, you know, we know that Bahrain has raised for many years uh, concerns that some Shia Muslims in the country are aligned with Iran, for example, uh, which is certainly seeking to destabilize the country, including through terrorist activity. Uh, but so it wasn't just, you know, the 10 years ago where we saw the Arab Spring movement that spread into Bahrain and there were protests and the government cracked down. They uniquely, as you already alluded to, started that uh, independent commission, which they funded the only government in the whole Middle East that funded an independent body with their own money to take a critical look at what they did. And there was a lot of bad stuff that that commission, uh, Sharif Bassioni, the late Sharif Bassioni, who was uh, appointed a former law professor uh, and uh, UN official who did a number of inquiries and work, but did a very detailed report. And so, as you mentioned, they've implemented and uh, some of that, but some NGOs still believe it hasn't fully been implemented, what they said in there. But how would you respond? Because this is something that still the Bahraini government puts up and there's some uh, reality to it. There's traction. But as far as Iranian, uh, the allegations about Iranian interference that gets mixed up with the Shia population, to what extent is that allegation accurate? And, and, and also, how does that impact religious freedom? Because, I mean, again, I remember that it gets a little complicated to say some uh, you know, actors in society, uh, there may be more nefarious groups than others, and that some people get caught up in that just for exercising their advocacy or their belief and so on. So can you unpack that a little bit for us? So from a security perspective, there is evidence that Iran has tried to destabilize Bahrain and has funded or equipped groups that seek to do damage to the government of Bahrain or to the Bahraini people. In the past few years, the State Department has designated as foreign terrorist organizations a couple of organizations that are based in Bahrain. Um, and so there is a clear link uh, or a demonstrable link, I should say, between the government of Iran and uh, some of these groups. At the same time, it's important to remember a few things. Uh, firstly, under international law, 
Religious freedom is non-derogable, which means that it can't be restricted on national security grounds. So regardless of whether or not there's a national security threat, it isn't consistent with international law to restrict freedom of religion. Secondly, and kind of in a more practical sense, the concern that the government often has is that disaffected members of the Shia community in Bahrain might be more inclined to align either with the government of Iran or with Ayatollah Khamenei as a religious figure. Um, one of the major Bahraini figures, Sheikh Isa Qasim, um, was uh, kind of allowed to go to the UK to receive treatment for an illness uh, and then went from there to Iran. So that raises some concern uh, from the government as well. Um, but this isolation is really a key point of concern. From a practical standpoint, though, integrating the Shia population rather than exacerbating isolation will be the most effective way to reduce that threat. And we see this in the CVE literature, the counterterrorism literature over and over again. It's people who are isolated who tend to be more prone to either radicalization or participation in violent extremism. So by improving freedom of religion, the government is actually reducing the threat from Iran by making it less likely that disaffected members of the Shia community um, would be inclined to, to reach out or to be recruited uh, by the government of Iran. You know, overall, in terms of the conditions for Shia, I think the government of Bahrain has tried to make a clean break with 2011, um, but a lot of Shia in the country aren't necessarily ready for that. And there are lingering concerns about discrimination in employment and hiring, uh, the very low representation of Shia in the military, especially at the upper echelons of the military, uh, and generally receiving government funding. There's also a really restricted civil society space in Bahrain, both for non-governmental organizations, but also for the press. Um, the major Shia opposition party, Al-Wathak, has been banned for a number of years. Some of its leaders are in prison, um, and several opposition newspapers have been shut down as well. So even when the government is making positive changes, it's often difficult to verify some of those changes because we don't have those independent voices that are saying, yes, the government is in fact doing this, and yes, this is in fact uh, an improvement. So improving the, the space for civil society um, would really make a big difference in improving freedom of religion and our ability to monitor and give credit where, where credit is due. You know, and I think a lot of that makes sense. Uh, I mean, I, I would have also thought that with the Abraham Accords, you know, with Bahrain recognizing Israel and that relationship opening up, as you alluded to earlier, that that would really rub it in uh, to Iran. And maybe that would uh, initiate some activity, uh, you know, in terms of Iranian response. But I guess we haven't seen much uh, yet. I mean, who knows? It's not, it hasn't been very long. But, you know, based on this changing geopolitical trajectory toward the Gulf with the U.S. relationship and and as well as uh, some of the countries that have, uh, you know, like the UAE, in addition to Bahrain and uh, and, uh, you know, a couple of other countries that have recognized Israel and started these uh, relationships up again. Um, I know for in the, going way back, we certainly were, you know, encouraging Bahrain through the U.S. government to put pressure on them to kind of follow the BICI report and implement things to rebuild mosques, but also to, you know, uh, you know, address the discrimination. But what now, now that Bahrain is no longer kind of uh, treated as a chapter, it's off of any of the, the, the two worst lists that we would recommend to the State Department, what recommendations uh, does USERF have now for the U.S. government as it continues to encourage uh, greater religious freedom in the country? 
So the Biden administration has yet to appoint an ambassador to Bahrain. So when that ambassador is appointed and goes through the confirmation process, members of Congress have a a large opportunity to ask questions of the nominee. And so we would encourage members of Congress to ask about religious freedom conditions and to raise some of these issues uh, with the nominee during the hearing, both to raise awareness for the general public, but also to communicate the importance of religious freedom issues to the person who will be leading the embassy in Manama. Um, The Bahraini government has also been working on a national action plan on human rights. The U.S. has already been involved in helping to support that, but we would encourage the State Department and other federal agencies to continue to provide expertise and encouragement and consultations um, on those Uh, on those documents, especially um, to include religious freedom issues and to make sure that those are part of that action plan. Um, Generally, I think it's important for both the State Department and the administration and members of Congress to encourage Bahrain to continue improving conditions for Shia and whether or not the, the level of discrimination is systematic or not, to make sure that whether or not someone is Shia or Sunni or another uh, sect of Islam or another religion, that they have the same opportunities. Um, and similarly, to encourage Bahrain towards greater civil society to provide a political mechanism for addressing concerns and to help with monitoring and verification. You know, Dwight, you just mentioned the Abraham Accords. Um, what's interesting is that in the past few weeks, there have been some protests in Bahrain um, in support of Palestinians and a sense that Palestinians were maybe not included in the Abraham Accords. And this was political protest, it was fairly straightforward and it was it was fine, there was no problem. And so for the Bahraini government to allow for that political space um, is, is really important. And that's a precedent that I think we can also apply to disaffected religious minorities who are peacefully advocating for greater rights. So opening up this space um, is a, a really positive step that the government of Bahrain can take to continue to have these consultations with religious minorities and also to improve the credibility of uh, claims that it's making about improved human rights and religious freedom conditions specifically in the country. Yeah, some really good points there. I appreciate that. And I, and I think, you know, a good example of uh, a country that uh, has taken it seriously, as I mentioned earlier, you know, certainly uh, uh, the embassy in Washington and the government in Manama has been willing to engage on these issues. They've attended uh, the two. They attended two of the ministerials on internet on religious freedom abroad. You know, in Washington, uh, hosted by the previous administration, uh, engaging on these issues certainly show uh, you know that they take it seriously. And so we want to give credit certainly there, and, and you can see it in terms of the progress and the fact that we no longer recommend uh, Bahrain for the special watch list. But again, uh, the long and short is we're still we're still monitoring some things and want to keep that engagement going uh, because uh, I think uh, we all want to see uh, Bahrain succeed and and make keep making that progress uh, and as you say to get to that more open space and, and allow for people to express their thoughts and beliefs uh, without fear. We'll have to leave it right here. But I want to thank Scott Weiner, our supervisory policy analyst, uh, covers the Middle East, a uh, big chunk of the Middle East, for his insights today on Bahrain to learn more about USERF's reporting on the country and our explanation uh, in detail of why we no longer recommend for this, uh, Bahrain for the special watch list. 
Uh, please visit our website at www.uscirf.gov. As always, thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time on USERF Spotlight. To learn more about USERF and about global religious freedom concerns, visit usurf.gov. That's U-S-C-I-R-F dot gov. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at U-S-C-I-R-F. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for another USERF Spotlight. <laughs>